Welcome to a new history of old San Antonio. Episode 13, Sons of Libertad. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America stands as the canonical outsider's perspective of the early American Republic in the age of Andrew Jackson. De Tocqueville was enchanted by what he saw in the United States, as the closest realization yet of the ideals of Enlightenment thinkers like Locke, Bentham, and Rousseau. It's a great read, and a great reminder of how radically different the American political experiment was from anything that had preceded it. But much more relevant to me than the account of a French aristocrat who came and went from the American continent in less than nine months is the account written one year before de Tocqueville by another keen observer of human nature, and a man who would have a much more direct impact on the course of events on the North American continent. Lorenzo de Zavala was born in the Yucatan Peninsula to a Spanish family in 1788, and like many bookish men of his age, went to and graduated from seminary. De Zavala's time at seminary only radicalized him, introducing him to all the works of the French Enlightenment and the new contributions to political thought being made across the Gulf of Mexico by men like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Upon graduating from seminary, he founded a series of newspapers in which he gave voice to the political arguments of republicanism and classical liberalism and how they might be applied to Mexico. By 1814, however, these were dangerous positions to espouse, and he was imprisoned for three years by royalists to shut him up. Imprisonment did nothing to moderate his zeal, however, and he picked up right where he left off upon his release. Luckily for De Zavala, the times were catching up to him, and when the former opponents of Mexican independence flip-flopped, they turned to De Zavala to frame their arguments. In 1820, it was De Zavala who was chosen to write out Mexico's grievances against the Spanish crown, and to present them to the Spanish parliament and other sympathetic ears on the European continent. Once Mexico had won its independence, De Zavala won a seat in the first Mexican Congress, where he became a constant thorn in the side of Mexican monarchists and centralists who seemed intent on reinstating the Spanish royal system only under a Mexican flag. When the Mexican monarchy collapsed in 1823, De Zavala was among the loudest agitating for the Constitutional Convention which was finally convened in 1824, to which San Antonio had sent Erasmo Seguin, as we saw in the previous episode. De Zavala was elected the president of the Constitutional Convention, and with his ideological soul brother, Coahuilan Miguel Ramos Arizpe from the previous episode, they steered the new Mexican constitution in a decidedly liberal direction. De Zavala and Ramos Arizpe would become the great voices of Mexican liberalism, or as their faction later became known, federalism, advocating for a system of divided government with limited powers devolved as much as possible to local governments who subscribed to a generally laissez-faire economic philosophy. The document that emerged from the 1824 Mexican Constitutional Convention reflects this. Under the 1824 Mexican Constitution, the new Mexican nation is declared to be a federal republic and formally named the United Mexican States. Like the republic to the north, the new Mexican republic featured a system of shared sovereignty between the federal and state governments, and checks and balances between the judicial branch, a bicameral legislative branch, and a very weak executive branch. In other respects, it fell more squarely in the Hispanic tradition, such as its endorsement of Catholicism as the official state religion and its general length and organization, which clearly derived from the 1812 Constitution of Cadiz, which we discussed in episode 10. Things went relatively smoothly for Mexico in the four years following the adoption of the 1824 Constitution. Indeed, you might say that things went well. The country grew, the economy prospered, and in some fields, such as public education, Mexico was at the forefront. Federalism was working, and Mexico which at the time was almost the exact same size geographically as the United States, and slightly bigger in terms of population, seemed to be on pace to join the ranks of the great world powers. And yet despite this success, the Federalist Party lost the election of 1828, and Federalists didn't take it well. Fearful that the new centralist president-elect would walk back all the advances of the previous four years, Federalist mobs, including Lorenzo de Zavala, prevented the popularly elected centralists from taking office. 
The Federalist-controlled Mexican Congress then appointed one of their own to assume the presidency, in absolute violation of the Constitution of 1824, and so the Centralists revolted, eventually overthrowing the Federalists and taking back the reins of government via their own counter-coup in 1830. But a tragic precedent had been set. Mexico would suffer 12 different presidents over the next 18 years, as the ballot box and the Constitution were stripped of all meaning. Politics devolved into caciquismo, to use the Mexican word, battles between political bosses who used ideologies opportunistically to advance their own claims. And by 1830, Lorenzo de Zavala was on the losing ideological side. He was forced to flee Mexico and resolved to spend his exile reflecting and studying the political system of the United States of the North and perhaps, we can't help but wonder, ponder his own role in bringing down the very Mexican political system that he had been so instrumental in creating. Over the next two years, and one year before de Tocqueville's journey, de Zavala would travel to New Orleans, up the Mississippi River to the American Midwest, over to Canada and New England, and then down to Washington, D.C., he would publish his travelogue in 1834 in Paris, again, one year before de Tocqueville, under the name Viajes a los Estados Unidos de Norte de América, Travels to the United States of North America. Like de Tocqueville, de Zavala is fascinated by Americans' energy and enterprise. He describes them as, quote, hardworking, active, reflective, circumspect, tolerant, thrifty, free, proud, and persevering, end quote. The symbol of the American, he suggests, should be a craftsman standing proud with a plow in one hand and a newspaper in the other. As a former newspaper man himself, he was blown away by the number of periodicals in America at this time, which in a nation of 12 million or so had several thousand, compared to maybe a few dozen in his native land. Literacy was near universal, and Americans of the time absolutely reveled in their first and most prized right, a freedom of speech. They debated political issues for fun, and the diversity of ideas that De Zavala describes hearing espoused is astounding. From atheism to theocracy, temperance to free love, even communism and anarchism, the variety of political beliefs entertained by these early Americans was exceeded only by the variety of religious beliefs that found expression in the New Republic. And most fascinating for De Zavala was that almost all of these schools of thought found a way to trace their ideology back to 1776. America's secular religion was in full bloom and actively championed by 1830s Americans everywhere with the kind of zeal typical to new converts. And why shouldn't they have been zealous? In 50 years, their system had allowed for a few million farmers pinned against the eastern seaboard to quadruple the size of their nation, their population, and their economy. No royal prerogative, no petty bureaucrat, no staid cleric stood in the way of any man making a place for himself in this new nation. By securing men and their property, no matter the political outcome, and removing the thousand little points of political control that existed in systems such as the old Spanish one, it was as though the American system had made of politics a game, and by so doing, blunted politics as a tool of oppression or fear. De Zavala's account is a spectacular window into what would come to be known as the Jacksonian Age. The irony, of course, in calling it the Jacksonian Age is that almost half the country would have deeply resented the term. President Andrew Jackson was a polarizing man, an outsider opposed to concentrated power in the hands of elites, but a man who over time concentrated more and more power into himself. Historians aren't wrong, however, to group Americans of all ideological stripes from this time period together, because fundamentally they were all more alike than they were different. Indeed, one of the best statements of the philosophy of the Jacksonian age comes from one of the most vocal opponents of Andrew Jackson, a congressman from the backwoods of Tennessee named David Crockett. His personal philosophy was simple, he said, Be sure you're right, then go ahead. It was the mantra of the times and the go-ahead men that it produced. These weren't a people that said someone should, they did, and there was effectively nothing standing in their way or slowing them down. We Americans who have grown up in this country take for granted how easy it is to do things here. For the most part, you don't need a permit or an approval or a patron to do the things you want in this country. It still defies belief for most people from elsewhere in the world. And it was even more wide open in 1830, when land was abundant, institutions were young, and opportunities seemed limitless. And it all served for De Zavala as an affirmation of what classical liberals had long wanted to believe, 
that a people really could organize itself from the ground up without the need for aristocracies of wealth or of intellect to order things for them. We've grown numb to how revolutionary this notion was. Smart people as far back as Plato always managed to convince themselves that for a society to prosper, it needs to be ordered by the smartest or the wealthiest or the most powerful. They debate who should hold the reins of power, not whether anyone should hold them at all. And even today, I fear, when things don't go our way politically, we're no less seduced by the idea of trying to impose order on those aspects of society we don't like, as long as the people that will do the ordering are like us. In the words of John Michael Rivera, who has edited a very accessible translation of De Zavala's travelogue, quote, Zavala followed Jackson's Republican belief in a diffused government, where the nation emerged and maintained its collectivity through the people themselves, end quote. Put differently, the early United States showed that the government need not be the nation, that a nation could derive its strength from the people directly, and that good governments actually frustrate good politicians, whose every incentive is to impose their interest group's will on the rest of society, and that good governments prevent the tyranny of the mob to which so many historic democracies had succumbed, as De Zavala had just witnessed in 1828 in Mexico. I'll share as well some of De Zavala's more offbeat observations. One, Americans in the 1830s all chewed tobacco, and they spit it everywhere. Floors everywhere were covered with tobacco juice, even as spittoons sat unused in the corners of the rooms. Dezavala found it repulsive and entirely inexplicable, and he wasn't the only one. Two, the downside to Americans' industry, Dezavala confessed, was that Americans were codiciosos, stingy or even greedy, and quite cold in their business dealings, a classic complaint about Americans by Latin observers through to the present. And three, interestingly, Americans in 1830 were inordinately proud of their prisons. They always wanted to show off their penal system to newcomers, and believed that with their emphasis on due process and rehabilitation, that all offenders could be made good again, given some time in a virtuous setting. And indeed, it was actually America's prison system that was the impetus for de Tocqueville's visit the next year. Fittingly for a man who had just written a nation's constitution, De Zavala wonks out on the constitutional framework of each state he passes through. For example, instead of saying, Then I arrived to Ohio, which comprises 44,000 square miles, 937 souls, is bounded by Pennsylvania to the east, the Ohio River to the south, Indiana to the west, and Michigan to the north, he begins his chapter in Ohio with, quote, The Constitution of the State of Ohio was drawn up in 1802. There are two chambers. The representatives are elected annually the second Tuesday in October, and the number is proportional to the population of males above the age of 21 years, but should never exceed 72 members, nor fall below 32. The senators are elected every two years in the same number. The governor is elected by the people every two years on the second Tuesday in October. The judicial power rests, and on and on and on. It reminds us that De Zavala isn't just a political theorist. He's a technocrat. He's making this journey to the U.S. as a study, in the hopes that it might serve as a, quote, useful lesson in politics, end quote, to the Mexican audience that he is, in fact, writing for. As such, he makes a fairly even-handed assessment of everything he sees. He makes no attempt to hide his admiration for North Americans' industry and earnestness, even as he unqualifiedly condemns some of the more peculiar institutions like slavery, which Mexico had just abolished. He acknowledges North Americans' peculiar penchant for isolation and other antisocial behaviors while excusing it as a byproduct of their work ethic. He defends their egalitarianism and simplicity against the condescension of other European observers appalled by Americans' inability to appreciate leisure. Yet he's also openly skeptical that a North American-style political system could work in Mexico. The North American system is, he concedes, quote, sublime, but not to be slavishly imitated, end quote slipping in one last shot against the peculiar institution. And it was in Texas in particular where De Zavala saw the opportunity for a perfect syncretism of Anglo and Hispanic virtues. While outsiders in both faraway Mexico City and in Washington, D.C. kept wanting to make Texas the great battleground where two cultures would collide, De Zavala and Seguin and Navarro and Ruiz and Austin and others saw that Texas was where these two great cultural traditions would converge and perhaps reach their fullest expression. 
Indeed, Lorenzo de Zavala's ideological soul brother, Miguel Ramos Arispe, described his Tejano constituents to the Spanish parliament in much the same way that de Zavala would describe Anglo-American Jacksonians. Quote, employed day and night in the honest and systematic cultivation of the soil, they are truly inflexible to intrigue, virtuously steadfast, haters of tyranny and disorder, justly devoted to true liberty, and naturally the most inclined toward all the moral and political virtues. End quote. And when we're talking about Texas in this period, we're fundamentally talking about San Antonio, the capital of the province and its economic and cultural heart. San Antonio in particular was where this cultural hybridization was already occurring, where old Tejanos were putting Anglo capital and technology into old trades and old lands that had long been starved of investment, and where Anglos were picking up the skills to defend themselves and proliferate across the semi-arid open range. The two groups were intermarrying, they were speaking each other's languages, and they were even beginning to share the same style of dress. Early San Antonio is the greatest validation of the famous frontier thesis in American history that we have. Indeed, historian Andres Tijerina, in his book Tejanos in Texas under the Mexican flag, makes the argument that the San Antonio frontier experience actually took the American frontier experience one step further, drawing it out to its most concentrated form, something that I think we see acknowledged indirectly by both the American idealization of the cowboy and the Mexican idealization of the charro, each recognized as a symbol of his respective nation and each deriving no small part of his identity from these early San Antonians. If we believe, as Frederick Jackson Turner and William Prescott Webb and Andres Tijerina and others do, that the experience of hacking a living out of the frontier and taming a continent created a national character uniquely well-suited for a liberal Republican government, indeed, that such a people would accept nothing less, and if we believe that San Antonians endured a similar, if not even more intense experience in their formative years, then we shouldn't be surprised if San Antonians felt an uncanny affinity for Jacksonian frontiersmen and their political ideology in the 1830s. Again, we quote De Zavala's biographer, John Michael Rivera, and remember, of course, that he's using the word liberal in the classical sense of the term here. Quote, Zavala turned his eyes to Texas, where he hoped a liberal utopia could be constructed upon enlightened ideas. Texas would serve as an alternative geopolitical space, located culturally and politically between Mexico and the United States. And Zavala believed that liberalism would stand as the mediating form of political and cultural organization in such a way that a liberal Texas state could usher the heterogeneity of different individuals into a collective people. In other words, the diverse peoples who colonized Texas would come together and form a heterogeneous people, the Texans, through a collective belief in a democratic state that ensured individual rights. End quote. De Zavala was as enchanted by these early San Antonians as we ought to be, and decided to cast his lot with them. He secured from sympathetic Federalists in the Coahuila legislature an impresario contract to establish a colony for Anglo-Americans, one of many which were starting to pop up in East Texas, thanks in large part to San Antonians' agitation. San Antonians in 1830 felt like they were on the cusp of something special. De Zavala agreed and best articulated their collective aspiration for a new, quote, mixed society of the American system and the Spanish customs and traditions, end quote, which would represent the triumph of the new world over the tired ideas and prejudices of the old, and quote, upon the Gothic ashes and the remains of untenable privileges, there will be raised up a glorious and enlightened generation that will learn to think and to hold and esteem their dignity by lifting their thoughts to a higher level, end quote. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. This episode, I'd also like to thank historian John Michael Rivera for salvaging De Zavala's Viajes a los Estados Unidos and making it available to a modern audience. You can find a link to it on our website, brandonseal.com. And also for this episode, I'd like to recommend that you go to the Witty Museum. 
the Witty will curate the San Antonio Tricentennial exhibit. And while you're there, you can see Jose Francisco Ruiz's and John Tuig's house, among other great exhibits on early San Antonio history. 